0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
1: While the military-trained astronauts of Apollo 11 walked on the moon in the summer of 1969 planting flags, the world back home seemed consumed by other things. The protests of hippies and activists and civil rights leaders. It was a study in opposites. Or was it? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Neil Marr talks about the social forces that shaped NASA in the 1960s and 70s, connecting the space race with the radical upheavals of the counterculture. Marr is a professor of history at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and Rutgers University, Newark. He's the author of Apollo in the Age of Aquarius. Neil Marr, thank you so much for talking with me.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So on the day before the Apollo 11 launch in uh, 1969, two leaders of the civil rights movement, Thomas Paine and Ralph Abernathy, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, were at uh, Cape Canaveral in Florida. I was wondering if you could explain why they were there. Sure.
2: Just to clarify, Thomas Paine was the head of NASA at the time. So he was uh, not so much a civil rights activist, but someone who Ralph Abernathy was very much interested in meeting because uh, Ralph Abernathy was Martin Luther King's right-hand man and the president of the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And Abernathy had traveled to Cape Canaveral to, uh, he said, not to protest uh, Apollo 11, but instead to sort of draw attention to the nation's, quote, distorted sense of national priorities and what Abernathy did was he arrived with 25 poor African-American families, four mules, and two old rickety wagons. And he, he asked Thomas Paine to meet him in the middle of a damp field outside the Kennedy Space Center with the Apollo rocket off in the distance. And um, he basically asked Payne to turn a lot of their technology around to sort of have the scientists work not only on getting the rocket to the moon, but also on problems um, back on Earth affecting poor African Americans. It's a pretty dramatic protest.
1: You, you know, I was just thinking as we kind of roll forward towards the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, that there are so many books on Apollo, uh, just hundreds. And this is a really interesting way of opening your book and kind of counterintuitive. And I was wondering why you decided to open the book this way.
2: I think that um, to me, what was interesting when I started thinking about the project was that that summer of 1969 was sort of interesting because on one hand, you had that launch, the Apollo 11 launch, where a million people from all over the country flocked down to Cape Canaveral to really celebrate the nation, to celebrate the fact that we were beating the Russians to the moon. And then a couple weeks later, three weeks later, you had half a million young people hitchhiking up to Woodstock, New York, to have a very different sort of gathering, right? It was quite critical of the country, especially with respect to Vietnam. And that criticism was told through through music. And I thought, how strange that these two events that seemed worlds apart were occurring only three weeks apart. And I thought, I'm interested in exploring how that could happen and what that meant for American culture at that, that moment.
1: You mention in your book that NASA eventually... Gradually becomes sensitized to some of these broader questions of economic uh, disparities and civil rights issues, and you talk about the attempts by uh, NASA to show that it's socially relevant right. with projects such as um, Project Breakthrough. I was wondering if you could talk about that.
2: Sure. Um, so in the 1960s, um, when you know, civil rights activists, but also I talk about feminists and counterculture hippies, but also anti-Vietnam War activists, they were all really quite critical of NASA demonstrating protesting. And in the 60s, NASA administrators didn't really have to pay much attention to that grassroots um, critique uh, because the race to the moon was so popular, right? We had to beat the Russians. But Mm -hmm. once we do beat them in the 70s, NASA does have to pay attention because popularity of the space race begins to sort of dwindle and so does their, their budget. So during that period, NASA begins to try to figure out ways of spinning off technologies to engage these critiques. And the 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 Operation Breakthrough example that you're talking about was related to uh, civil rights activists and their critique that we were spending all this money, twenty billion dollars, to get to the moon and to, in a sense, house astronauts in space in space capsules. Uh, but we were spending very, very little money, you know, improving um, living conditions in what was then called the American ghetto. Mm-hmm. So what NASA does is it creates, and I believe it was 1972, it creates a, an urban systems project office. The office is charged with spinning off technologies to um, help um, inner city residents, especially African Americans. And it teams up with HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, to do that. And they begin to try to create technologies to help what was HUD's project then called Operation Breakthrough, which was to try to create efficient, low-cost prefab housing in cities that would help inner city residents. And one technology that NASA attempts to spin off was they took really the really efficient heating and cooling systems that they had developed for the NASA space capsule, the Apollo space capsule, um, and they actually implement them and and transfer them to low-income housing projects. They only do it in one, but it was a pretty interesting attempt to try to take space technology and ground
1: it back on Earth. How effective was it in- uh...
2: um, it, it, It's located in uh, Jersey cities near Newark, New Jersey. They only, they only implemented one. I went and visited it. Um, it was efficient. It, it lowered energy consumption. It lowered costs um, but it was very, very costly to maintain. It's basically being held together even today with duct tape because they can't find a lot of parts for it. So what I argue in the book that it is that it was really more performative than substantive. It was really NASA showing civil rights activists and the public that it was attempting to deal with these issues, but it didn't really change the lives of inner-city African-Americans at all.
1: When, uh, when I read that section of your book, I was thinking about the term spinoff and how, my God, that's such a central um, structure of NASA's justification for doing all of this, this work uh, towards human exploration of the planets, this idea that, well, in the process, we don't know how to do it now, but in the process of doing it, we're going to discover all of this amazingly cool, practical stuff right. uh, for the world back home. And I was thinking my God, did that start around Project Breakthrough? Uh, did you run across any discussion of spinoffs in the in the early part of the 60s when you started this project?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that they were always, NASA officials, NASA administrators, were always trying to defend money being put into space exploration through the concept of, of a spinoff. And usually not so much scientific knowledge, but more um, spinoffs that could help people, normal everyday people back on Earth. But I don't think it was a it was as important a concept in the sixties because it was such a popular program to, you know, to get to the moon. I think it was in the 70s when NASA realized that spin-off technology was really its ticket to maintaining popularity and also maintaining its budget. So NASA actually starts publishing a, a, a glossy magazine called Spinoff and mm-hmm. sending it out to people all over the country to try to sort of um highlight a lot of the technologies that they were trying to transfer. So it became increasingly important, I think.
1: One of the uh, cool things about your book was your discussion of these iconic photographs, um, Earthrise, the photo of uh, the Earth uh, coming over the uh, horizon of the moon in Apollo 8, and then the, uh, the blue marble photograph of the whole Earth on Apollo 17, which I guess became the cover of the whole Earth catalog. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those have been talked about as these kind of iconic photographs of the environmental movement, but you seem to be kind of turning them around to look back at NASA itself. How does the environmental movement affect NASA?
2: Yeah, I was sort of very surprised by my research on that uh, chapter. It, It turns out, you know, I'm an environmental historian and that chapter on the environmental movement and NASA was really the, the spark for the book so i thought that would be the first one i would write but it turned out it was the i wrote it much much later um, partly cuz i i kept finding sort of strange source material that made me rethink my original idea about what those images meant um, but uh-huh. to get back to your question and i'll answer I'll, you know answer both on my in my discussion but the way that I think that NASA influenced the environmental movement or the way the environmental movement influenced NASA was early on people like Stuart Brand, you know, an early envi- environmentalist in the 1960s. He he really wanted NASA to turn back around and look at Earth and he wondered why we hadn't had a, a photograph of the whole Earth yet. So he's tripping on LSD on his rooftop in San Francisco no. and he, he prints up the next day hundreds of buttons asking the simple question, why haven't we seen a picture of the whole Earth yet? And he sends them out to NASA scientists and 4 years later 5 years later all of a sudden administrators are you know consciously changing the direct trajectory of Apollo 17 to get that image. Huh. So in that sense the, the environmentalists were sort of pushing NASA to think you know more environmentally. But what I found so interesting about that photograph was that I had assumed it immediately became an environmental icon. But when I went to do my research online I found it, it was just absent from From Earth Day celebrations, from you know the campaigns of the Sierra Club, and we're talking you know the mid seventies. There was just there was no iconography of that image. So in the book, I make the argument that it it had to be made into an environmental icon, and I make the argument that NASA helped do that through a lot of its data gathering on uh, regarding global ecological changes that then get sort of overlaid onto that image. And that, that slowly that image becomes, in a sense, a green, a green image.
1: Huh. One other really interesting chapter in your book talks about the women's movement and Sally Ride's first flight. You, you open that chapter with Sally Ride's first flight on uh, the space shuttle in 1983 right, right. and her reception back at the Johnson Space Center. I was wondering if you could talk about that scene.
2: It's a a great scene. And I I actually got some pushback on opening that chapter with Sally Ride, but I'm really glad I did because I think that what she was doing in the the event I'm going to describe was just subtle and very, very powerful. So basically, the the Challenger is unable to land at Cape Canaveral because of a storm. So they, they redirected to land at the Edwards Air Force Base in California. Um, And they land and the five crew members get off the shuttle. They wave to a small crowd. And then they're immediately whisked to the Johnson Space Center where there's a a homecoming ceremony. And they're on the the sort of makeshift stage. And all of a sudden, a NASA protocol officer walks forward with a huge bouquet of carnations and roses, a white and red bouquet. And he's walking right towards Sally Ride. And she looks him squarely in the eye. This is in front of hundreds of people and she rather subtly shakes her head back and forth, you know, and then he he doesn't pay attention. He keeps walking towards her and she turns her back on him and leaves him standing there awkwardly with this arm full of flowers. And then wow. immediately these these NASA administrators rush forward and give flowers to the wives of the other Challenger crewmates, but they have nothing for for astronaut Steve Hawley, who was there and at the time Sally Wright's husband. Um, and I just use that as a way to talk about her body and and women's and men's bodies and how they play a significant role in NASA's defense of the all-male astronaut corps, and then also women activists and how they use the female body to try to force and pressure NASA to begin undertaking medical examinations for women in space, and then finally accepting women into the astronaut corps.
1: Uh, Sally Ride occupies this really interesting place in your story about someone who is so determined as you write about to be seen as one of the crew yeah to in a sense express this idea that there is no difference between her and the other crewmates right. simultaneously she's a rock star and an icon and somebody totally willing to acknowledge her debt to second wave feminism it's a really interesting yeah kind of uh, juxtaposition. And there's this other interesting juxtaposition that you make between her and difference feminists who are arguing yeah, that, yeah. in fact, women are superiorly constructed physiologically, psychologically for spaceflight. Could you talk about that?
2: Sure. You know, that was the most interesting part about that chapter is, you know, in each chapter, I try to look at how, on the one hand, these grassroots activists are influencing NASA and the space race. So in this case, how feminists were influencing NASA, you know, pushing NASA to accept uh, women as astronaut astronauts. But I also in each chapter look at the other equation, the other causal relationship, which is how is NASA affecting these movements? And in this chapter, it was sort of the most difficult to find. But what I did find was that this debate over female astronauts um, within the second wave feminism caused an internal discussion um, within the movement about women and whether they were equal to men or whether they were different but worthy as well to become mm-hmm. astronauts and this really goes back to 1963 when the Russians launched Valentina Tereshkova the first woman in space and then when she comes down they use her as an example of equality of the sexes right yeah so you have you have some feminists embracing that idea but then you have other feminists saying no women are actually quite different than men biologically. And that difference matters, as you just said.
1: You know, I had a historian, Emily Gibson, on the show recently, and uh, she was talking about the role of women in commercial airlines. And in particular, she was talking about the role of women air hostesses Mm -hmm. and how they were used in airline advertising in the 1940s, 1950s, in part to make exotic spaces. You know, African destinations, South American destinations right, right. seem exotic but safe. Right. And and that how those images were used in a way to expand these air empires for Air France and, and other right. airlines. I was wondering if you saw some kind of similar role here for NASA, the, a way of showing that spaceflight had gone from its kind of extreme environment to uh, something that was more habitual, maybe even domestic, or if that did happen, whether NASA was worried about
0: yeah,
2: yeah.
1: women astronauts giving it that construction.
2: Well, it's interesting because I think that, you know, I guess I'll, I'll reply with the question that we can keep talking about this because I find it really sort of fascinating. When, when you think of um, an astronaut from the 1960s, and if you don't picture them in a spacesuit in space, what, what what comes into your head?
1: Oh, God. I imagine them in the test planes, actually.
2: Okay, good. They're, they're flying their rockets, or they're they're driving their really fast Corvettes in yeah. their cars. Yeah. Or they're, they're, you know, they're drinking hard, or they're, you know, they're. That's how they. That's how NASA presented these these men as these virile sort of supermen in a way, right? Um, and I think that women astronauts were a threat to that brand, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, these virile spacemen. I mean, the first the first um, press conference where NASA introduces. Uh, the americas first astronauts there was one reporter who said it felt more like a beauty pageant than anything else because they were these these tanned men very muscular they all were sort of um, you know sort of performing up there in front of the press corps and i think that people like sally ride and the other women pilots who were trying to be astronauts in the very very early years even in the 1960s very much threatened that and i don't think that nasa ever really embraced the notion that Spaceflight could be domestic. Mm. You know, there there was a lot of pushback and questions about, for instance, you know, Sally Ride's or women astronauts on the space shuttle. Where would they sleep? Where would they go to the bathroom? It, it was not presented as something that was a casual, easy th- thing to do. Um, and I think that that's partly because the the women who were involved didn't want to be perceived that way. Sally Ride refused to be photographed um, performing any of the sort of common duties on the space shuttle, such as cooking, cleaning, which all the astronauts shared those duties, but she would not be photographed doing those things because she assumed that then that would be taken as a, uh, evidence that she was basically, uh, you know, the den mother yeah. on the space shuttle. So I don't think it ever went domestic, like the Jetsons. You know what I mean? I think that it, it, it was very much protected a little bit more.
1: There's a, There's this interesting dilemma that you paint towards the end of your book in talking about the culture of NASA, which really has its roots in this conservative all-male, as you put it, virile culture of military men, test pilots, and then uh, the engineers who are building the craft, the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And then simultaneously... NASA has to become sensitive to this counterculture, which the the people of which look so different, and they're interested in such social and right. uh, environmental ideas. Um, how does NASA end up making it through this?
2: It's interesting because in all the other chapters, so there's chapters on civil rights, Vietnam, environmentalism, and then second wave feminism, and in each of those chapters, NASA eventually comes around to trying to engage those movements. Um, The last chapter looks at both the hippie counterculture and the new right, the conservative movement, in one chapter. And it's sort of a chapter about the battle over NASA. And uh, whereas the counterculture very much rejects NASA as part of that military-industrial complex, they really want to focus on things like inner space rather than outer space. um, They really reject that. The new right, the sort of rising conservative movement, really embraces nasa as a a sign of you know the free market they look at the aerospace industry as a symbol of free market democracy when it's compared to the soviet union you have people like Uh an rand and william f buckley coming out in support of it and that battle really plays out and in that chapter nasa does not try to appease the the hippies nasa i believe very much sides with the new right and, and uh Plays into that movement and relies on that movement more than it does the hippies.
1: I was also thinking when I read that chapter about a, an interview I ran recently with Valerie Olson, who's a space yeah. anthropologist at uh, University of California, and she talks about how you know NASA is so rich with this language of the frontier, you know, and making Absolutely. these explicit links back to the nineteenth century. Uh, frontier thesis and a lot of stuff that a lot of you know a lot of people, a lot of progressives, kind of freak out about. Right. And yet, when she talks to engineers themselves about their work, you know, kind of moving away from the rhetoric, but just to what kind of work do they do to keep humans alive in um, the space shuttle or in uh, the International Space Station? They talk almost obsessively about environment. Yeah, and you, she, she even has this great quote. From this engineer, he's like it's environment, environment, environment. That's everything that we do.
2: I wish I had had that quote. I would have put it in my book. <laughs> it's a great quote.
1: <laughs> but it seemed to me like, wow, uh, there's a kind of stealth environmental thinking within. Absolutely. These kinds of uh, you know fairly, as you said, buttoned up, conservative, yeah. uh, and and uh, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that.
2: Yeah, I mean one of the one of the most interesting things I found when I was looking at you know, sort of the construction of the Apollo space capsule, this is in the 1960s, was that it wasn't so stealth, as you said, this interest in the environment. As a matter of fact, NASA hired um, one of the most famous ecologists of the period, uh, Eugene Odom, mm. to, help, to think, help them think about designing the early space capsules for these astronauts. And he did several experiments where he tried to create his own capsules, enclosed ecosystems um, that would grow, in this case, plankton and other types of flora to not only create food for astronauts, but also to clean the air within the, the cabins yeah. um, and to also provide you know clean water and things like that. So NASA was very much involved in that in the early years, but engineers argued that it would be too expensive and it would take up too much room to, to transport those environments into space and that they could basically do it through technology uh, more efficiently. So I think that, that that notion had been around within NASA from the beginning, but got sort of pushed to the side in the, the push to get people alive to the moon.
1: You mentioned at the beginning of your book that so many environmental histories focus on a particular set of subjects, national parks and environmental policy and pollution. And that you were hoping to apply this kind of environmental thinking to uh, subjects outside of that, particularly Apollo. And that simultaneously, people who do study Apollo, these kinds of histories of the space age, have for a long time tended to focus a little too much on technology, the kind of deterministic quality of technology as the driver, I guess, of space history. Right. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk both about your interest in situating your book that way. And also if you see now that you've completed it, other areas that you think we need to work on to how to to apply this to other kinds of. Sure. Sure.
2: So I think that what happens in, in academia or in any sort of field is that we become siloed off right from, from the rest of culture or the rest of history. And it's happened in environmental history where, in the early years of the of the field, people, as you said, wrote about parks and pollution, and not not much else. And other other historians didn't really pay attention because it didn't involve things like the Civil War or the Great Depression, right? And within um, space history, people did tend to talk about the technology or perhaps the administrators. And again, people outside that field weren't really paying attention either. And I was just sort of I was tired of speaking at my conferences to fifty other people, and I mm-hmm. thought. How do we broaden this out and and make this about bigger, broader issues? So, the book was originally going to be just about NASA and environmentalism, but I I thought that was too narrow. So I pushed further to try to engage what I saw as the real important political context of that era, and I did that by bringing in these other movements, you know, civil rights, anti-Vietnam War, counterculture, the New Right, and I think it's a you know it's a much bigger, broader book now. There are Pitfalls in that as well, because you're open to much more criticism by a much broader group <laughs> of people. But it was just the type. It was the kind of book I wanted to write at this point in my career. I didn't want to write a narrow book. And and to give you an example of something else, I think we need to do. I'm, I'm thinking about a new project on looking at the the urban crisis of the 1960s, riots occurring in places like Newark, uh-huh. New Jersey, Watts, and Los Angeles, and really thinking about that. Of course, as a a racial and economic problem. Um, But there were also a lot of environmental issues going on, whether it's poor and unhealthy living conditions, no access to outdoor recreation, pollution, strewn streets. Uh, There's an environmental component to those crises that I think has not been thought about. So it's an example of an environmental historian, not just thinking about parks and pollution, but thinking about a bigger event in U S history and how it might have been influenced by our relationship to the natural environment, including the natural environment of cities.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I was thinking when I, when I saw how you positioned this uh, of some other kind of space related projects. um, I was just thinking this week about opportunity, the, the Martian Rover Mm -hmm. and how it's uh, it seems to have given up the ghost. They can't contact it anymore. Right, and right. what I was what I was following online on Twitter was just how how incredibly sad these communities of people, yeah. people are, and how uh, we sometimes think about robotic space exploration as being divorced from so many of the issues that we attach yeah. to human space exploration. Yeah. But in fact, it's it's incredibly human. These, I, I
2: totally agree.
1: Yeah. These these. I, yeah. Go
2: ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, your your the point you just made is really one of the most surprising feelings i had about about doing this book was that i sort of thought that when i did this started this book that it was going to be a book that was quite critical of these attempts to put a man on the moon to beat the russians this sort of cold war battle going on and i thought you know why were they going to the moon i guess at that point in the research very very early i was identifying more with those hippies up in woodstock yeah but but then as i read the reminiscences of people whether it was people on the street or Administrators at NASA, or engineers, or scientists, or even the astronauts, you realize that this attempt and and the moon landing ultimately had a really important existential impact. You could almost say a spiritual impact on the people at the time. And I realized that it was quite important and that it was quite valid. And um, it made it much more complex for me. It made it not just about putting nuts and bolts. On the moon and more about what does this country and what do we as the human race really want to do and how do we want to think about exploration but also ourselves it was pretty heavy stuff and i think that you know the mars rover you know going going dead as they called it they used the word dead in the in the newspaper and people feeling emotion about that i think that's a similar existential connection to something bigger out there that's important
1: Neil, Marr, thank you so much for talking with me.
2: Michael, it was really fantastic. Thanks a lot.
1: That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat... Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at timetoeatthedogs, that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.